Adel on RNZ National, Steve McCabe and Julia Hartley Moore with me now. You can listen to the panel on iHeart, on Apple and on Spotify uh, if you can't catch it live. Now starting with climate change and research released just this afternoon, extreme events from climate change has influenced every aspect of Antarctica, breeding failures of entire penguin colonies, ice shelf collapse, large loss of sea ice. According to a review by UK scientists, 40 degrees Celsius in the East Antarctic Plateau. And it's all happening quite quickly. Meanwhile, a significant New Zealand climate announcement this morning. American investment firm BlackRock will fund $2 billion to build a 100% renewable energy system in the country. Uh, Chris Hipkins called this investment a watershed moment for New Zealand's decarbonisation. Larry Fink, the chief executive of BlackRock, he said it was the largest low-carbon investment initiative the company has ever created for a single country. Greenpeace, though, they're concerned about the heavy reliance on private finance to achieve 100% renewable energy goals. With us is Professor Nancy Berkler, Principal Scientist at GNS Science and Director of the Antarctic Science Platform. Uh, Professor Bertler, welcome. Kia Wallace. Thanks so much for having me. This latest research on Antarctica, how does this add to our knowledge of what is already happening there now? Yeah, it's really the element of surprise. You know, I think that none of us who are in the field have anticipated the ferocity and the frequency with which we experience those um, climate events, these extreme events, both around the world, but also in Antarctica. And so this study is really um, very important because it synthesizes sort of the knowledge of um, where these occur, what they look like. And it brings together a quite interdisciplinary team where, you know, biologists talk to atmospheric physicists to really understand the connections and therefore some of the really scary consequences. Yes, reading about some of the things that are happening or you see happening, you know, for example, in the normal year, the Southern Ocean is covered by around 17 million square kilometres of sea ice. Yes, about an area roughly the size of 63 New Zealands. This year, a loss of around nine New Zealands. One scientist called it off the charts. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that gives us sleepless nights because, well, most people possibly don't think very much about CIs. You know, what happens with the CIs will have consequences for every single person on this planet, for every ecosystem around us. It's such a huge integrator in how energy is um, transported across the globe um, and also how carbon is uptaken into the ocean that it really has enormous consequences. And the change in the sea ice cannot be overstated. You know, the, the dramatic change that we have seen since 2016 um, is really equivalent to what we have seen in the Arctic over 30 years. So over a few years, the Antarctic has completely caught up with the, you know, sort of sad sea ice loss that we saw in the Arctic for so many decades. Right. Now, stay there, um, Nancy. We've got a panel with us. They might jump in with a comment or, a, I don't know, a question. Julia, do you want to start? Well, I just wonder, have we gone too far? I mean, obviously, we have to do everything we can, but has it gone too far to to change? What do we do to change? What What's really going to make a difference now with the extent that climate change has, has become? Nancy? Oh, Julia, that's such a good and difficult question. But, 
you, you sort of said it, you know, we have to do everything we can. We have about seven years to 2030 left um, to reduce our emissions by half. And if we achieve that, we not only achieve a much better outcome for humanity in terms of, you know, clean air and better living style, but we actually could achieve the Paris Agreement. And if we can achieve the Paris Agreement, then we could achieve that by the end of the century. We're starting to cool the planet again to normal conditions. If we miss the Paris Agreement, you know, if it gets warmer than that, if we can't have our emissions in seven years, which is a big task, then we commit the planet for centuries to come for continued warming, regardless of what we do after 2030. So, it's, it's a watershed moment. It's an enormous task for humanity. But saying that we can't give up, right? Even if we've missed the Paris Agreement, every bit of emissions that we can reduce will still make the future of future generations better. And so I'm quite, you know, at times um, it's hard to think that we could, that we could um, still achieve that. It's, it's really difficult to see how we can get there. Right, Steve. But we cannot let off. Yeah. I mean, we, we've got one continent left that we've not completely fouled up. We've got one almost pristine continent, or so we thought, and we're stuffing it up quite badly. Nancy, where do you stand on Antarctic tourism? Is it time to put a stop to that? You know, it's a difficult part because I think um, I don't know enough about how much actually came out of um, people going to Antarctica and really very well read. They uh, are really devoted to conserve conservatism they they sort of are becoming advocates for antarctica yeah. and so i think that there can be a really positive um influence but of course there's also the localized negative influence of having people in antarctica and to be honest i don't have the research um knowledge to know which one is sort of the overwhelming you know outcome of that but there is a positive role of tourism in antarctica and the people that go yeah, and the other aspect, I guess, uh, of note, and I, I think it relates to what Julia is talking about. And, you know, whether it's, uh, I guess, whether it's too late or not, and that's just the the the, the pace of it. Um, one thing of note, I think the report said the dramatic sea ice loss would also cause this amplified warning effect, wouldn't it? Because you know, white sea ice. Um, reflects 90% of the incoming solar radiation and the dark water absorbs 90%. And if you're not careful, that would just be a um, a, a paste-up effect, I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Wallace. Um, and we see this in the Arctic um, because the Arctic has warmed so much faster than much of the rest of the globe because of that CS effect. Ah. However, in the Antarctic, um, we have sort of additional concerns um, that are equally powerful, if not maybe even more important. Um, and that is that when sea ice builds, it rejects some really cold, heavy, salty water, and that drives the ocean circulation globally. And if that ocean circulation changes, it changes how heat is transported around the world. And with that, where we have droughts and fires and floods and all the lovely things we got to become quite used to. But also if this heavy cold water sinks, it's minus two degrees, it's really, really cold. It takes a lot of CO2 with it out of the atmosphere. And so again, if if that doesn't happen because we don't have sea ice, more CO2 stays in the atmosphere. And that's not just the anthropogenic CO2, that's sort of the natural CO2 as well. 
And that means we now then get sort of a double whammy. You know, the oceans don't transport the heat as efficiently anymore, and we keep more CO2 in the atmosphere, which means we get in much warmer conditions globally. So the change in the sea ice that we see is really, really concerning. It's something that um, the whole community is trying to figure out the actual reasons and trends and what we right. can do about it. Final question for Steve here. Well, at the risk of sounding hideously pessimistic, uh, I just wonder, is, is anyone actually really going to pay attention to this? We've got Europe currently is on fire. A couple of years ago, the entire of Australia was on fire. We've, we've got temperatures in the 50s in places like Iran. Um, you know, in Arizona, in the US, we've seen, you know, temperatures in the, in, in the high 40s and low 50s for a month at a time. And we're still not doing anything about it. That's not enough to, to get a sensible response from people is is something as as distant and remote and off out of people's minds as antarctica going to have that much effect i mean what's happening there is clearly hugely problematic but is that going to change people's thinking oh steve i think you sort of really put the head on the nail because as scientists we struggle to communicate in a way that actually achieves positive action right we're not the people to have the skill set usually to do this and we have uh, really incredibly failed in that area. We we know that this is a problem for like 30 years and we've made very little progress. But saying that, it literally is the future of humanity that's at scape. So I guess we're trying to battle on. But if you and others have advice on how we actually can translate that into positive action and really behavioral change and sort of embracing mm. what could be quite a wonderful future... Nice one, yeah. Professor. Yeah, Very good to have you on the program, Professor Bertler. Uh, really appreciate it. That's uh, Nancy Bertler, their principal scientist at GNS, um, giving us a bit of a clarion call, actually. A bit, bit glum, isn't it, really, uh, to, to think about this? But needless to say, that's the uh, report out uh, this afternoon, uh, just uh, 4 p.m. today, actually, talking about what's happening in Antarctica and happening very, very quickly. But to this, what a cup it has been and is. Could any of us have anticipated the immense success of the FIFA World Cup? Witness, for example, the incredible spectacle of the 75,700 screaming fans at Sydney's Stadium Australia as the Matildas charged into the quarterfinals and the ninth FIFA Women's World Cup has been hailed as the greatest by the FIFA president. Records smashed. The Cup is also, however, a reminder that the players today, schools and their talent, build on the players that have gone before. And there are some past football firms that feel that uh, they could have been more included in events and proceedings, some of whom... Uh, have even been asking New Zealand football about the tournaments uh, last, from last year. With us is former football ferns Wendy Henderson, who played in two FIFA Women's World Cups. Wendy, kia ora, good to have you here. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Pleasure, Wendy. To this cup first, I don't know, many are blown away by the event. It's been followed and reported on globally. What have your thoughts been watching it, Wendy? Oh, firstly, as a spectator, it's just been so exciting. It's been really entertaining. Um, and overall, just great football with great crowds, and it's captured just so much interest. And speaking of that interest, Wendy, what I like is that it's not just relegated to the to our team, eh, the football ferns. Witness, for example, the 43,000 people crammed uh, to watch Spain versus Switzerland. I think that's what's 
just been so, um, in some ways, overwhelming for this World Cup is that you've seen pool games, you know, have record crowds um, in New Zealand and Australia. Um, but like you say, teams, not the football ferns, people are going along just to sport, you know, yeah. women's sport and women's football in general, which is, yeah, it's just so, you know, it's been great to see. Now, before we get to the panel, just one from me, uh, Wendy, that is, do you think it was a bit of a missed opportunity? And I know Zoe George has done a piece on this, that some of the past football ferns could have been more included in the proceedings itself. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess that's how some of us are feeling. Um, we just feel like uh, it certainly wasn't about recognition. You know, we we played a sport that we, we loved and we did it for the love and um, for that passion. And so it certainly hasn't been about recognition. For us, it's been about uh, perhaps a missed opportunity to, um, you know, be involved, uh, to connect with, you know, the, the current team and, and um you know, just sort of uh, share some of that history and where the games come from, but also to share it with the public, with the New Zealand public. You know, what we're seeing is people get really interested in women's football today, um, but it's a game that's been around since 1975 at a New Zealand level um, in this country. So, you know, it would have been really nice to sort of tell the story of the 1975 team winning the, the Asian Cup. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the team's going away to Taiwan in 81, 83 and 87, uh, the the first ever Women's World Cup in 1991 that New Zealand beat Australia to attend. So I guess just connecting, you know, all of that history um, was perhaps a, a missed opportunity. Julia? I, look, I actually agree. I think it's, it sort of saddens me in a way because of what, what these women did back in the day. And I think the rugby union looks after the you know, or acknowledges the ex-All Blacks, etc., far more than these women have been acknowledged. And and I know they're not looking for recognition, but I think they could have been a part of this. They could have, because they've just, they'll have so much history and knowledge. And they, I think, gosh, they could have been given free tickets. They, I really think they could have done more. Did you get free tickets, Wendy? Did you get free tickets? Um, there, there was, I mean, a lot of us who have been, you know, around supporting the World Cups for a long time, we know that it's a FIFA-run tournament. You know, I personally purchased tickets last October. For me, it wasn't about tickets. Yeah. Um, there were some um, of some of the pool games that were offered to players uh, a couple of weeks before the tournament opened. But, you know, I guess like any avid fan, you know, we were in last October buying tickets. So to, to me, it wasn't about tickets. Steve. I mean, I have, I have such mixed feelings on this one as an English um, football fan, because once again, we've got uh, an English football team making it through to the quarterfinals. Uh, we've got our hopes up and, and we it, this only ever ends one way, doesn't it, if you're English? So, <laughs> I mean, it, as they always say, it's the hope that kills you. But still, we, we, we still believe that the Lionesses are going to do it. But... There's one thing that bugs me in all of this is the fact that we always refer to this as the Women's World Cup. And yes, I know that there, it's, it's women playing. But when we had the Rugby World Cup here recently, it wasn't badged as the Women's Rugby World Cup. It was just the Rugby World Cup and it was brilliant. Suddenly, because it's ladies playing a men's sport, we have to call it the Women's World Cup. Can we not just brand it as the World Cup, please? It's bloody good football and get on with it on that level. Fair point, Wendy. Yeah, that is a fair point. And I guess, um, you know, for, for those of us that have been around for a few decades, it took a long time for FIFA to recognise 
um, you know, the woman playing the game, hence the first World Cup in 1991. So I guess at that time, you know, it was fantastic to be part of that. And, you know, all the, all the memorabilia that we kind of got mm. definitely stipulated, you know, the first FIFA Women's World Cup. And, um, but, you know, I, I agree. At the end of the day, it's football um, and it's a World Cup. I do agree. Uh, I think Julia um, brought up a good point, Wendy. That you know, if it was the All Blacks, you know, you, you do they do bring in the the clarion call, don't they, of former players, uh, you know, right going right back, and that's something that really uh, could well happen and may well happen, hopefully, uh, from here on in. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it didn't stop us, and I think that's yeah. important to note that you know, as ex players, um, we certainly got together. I hadn't seen some some of the players for 30 years and um, you know we we did our own thing and um, right up to you know even purchasing our own football fern shirts and putting our our surnames and our fern selection numbers on them Mm. Um, and that that was in support of the current ferns team you know we wanted to go along to the games and you know demonstrate our um, our support to the current ferns and and we're right there with them. Well I hope we get to hear more from uh, you and other uh, former football ferns Wendy thanks for being with us on the panel. No problem. Thanks for having me. That is a former football friend, Wendy Henderson, uh, playing two FIFA Women's World Cups. Uh, wants to be, perhaps in the future, but more part of the proceedings. But uh, to this, 25 past for the panel. Also on iHeart, on Apple and on Spotify, we have uh, Julia Hartley-Moore, by the way, and Steve McCabe. And Wellington Mayor Tori Farno's dog, Teddy can't come to the office anymore, evicted from the mayoral office after a tenancy breach. Farno told the New Zealand Herald she's upset and described the situation as an emotional hit. Farno would bring the two-year-old Staffordshire Bull Terrier to the office. The council, however, had an agreement not to allow animals on the premises. Um, Farno is saying, I love my job, it's tough, but I'm also single and home alone and like every other millennial with a dog, Teddy is my fur baby. So the minute she knew the rules... The dog was taken home. Julia Hartley Moore. Should she have been allowed to bring in her dog? Well, Wallace, at my feet in my office is one of my dogs. And um, when I go to see a senior barrister colleague of mine in his office, often is his dog under his desk. And in his uh, legal secretary's office is her dog under her desk. Um I don't know why. I don't know why in this country we have this problem with with dogs um, being allowed into offices, into shops. I was sent out of Mitre Ten when my puppy was about two inches long, and I was carrying her. I was told to remove my dog from the premises. Um, and yet, if not I go everyone, and... not everyone likes dogs, Julia Hartley Moore. Yes, but look, here's the thing: but we they need to should. get with the program here. They should, and in France. I was in Galleria Lafayette, which you can look at it as something like Smith and Coe's, and I walked around the part of the place where Giorgio Armani was, and there was a man with his great Dane on a lead. And it's just accepted. Dogs are well-behaved. You're not going to take your dog anywhere if it's not well-behaved. Um, I think we need to sort of... I feel sorry for Tori and the fact that Teddy's her fur baby. A lot of young people now aren't having children, and they're having dogs, animals, as their, as their children. Okay, um, so that's that's, that's a yes. Uh, Julia is saying that's a yes okay, to bring a yes. dog in. Okay. Uh, Anna disagrees. No dogs. I was at work on a so-called toilet train dog wheel on my foot, and I was wearing open-toe sandals. Uh, Steve, well, I mean, two, oh, two points. 
two points to make here. First, first of all, um, dogs should be required in workplaces. Every every workplace should have a dog. Uh, and I'm sure Teddy is a very, very good boy. So it's a real shame that he's not allowed at work. Secondly, this isn't about the dog, is it? This is about the fact that we've got, once again, a young female left-leaning politician in oh, New Zealand being absolutely dog. hounded by the press. This is not about the dog. She did the right thing. As soon as she found out that she wasn't allowed to bring Teddy to work, she stopped. Somebody should have told her ahead of time that she wasn't able to. But this, she is being hounded once again. She should absolutely be bringing that dog to work. He's a very good boy. Well, here's one. No to dogs in the office, Wallace. The expectation that everyone, like your panellists, thinks that everyone else is going to love their baby as much as they do is wrong. I don't want their adorable, quote-unquote, baby sniffing around me or expecting a pet when it smells. I don't want to be licked or have to tolerate wheeze uh, <laughs> or facial expressions. No thanks. Bring in the four-day working week, by the way. Obviously so, a cat lover, that one. <laughs> okay, so both of you are saying, look, New Zealand, lighten up and relax. Julia, totally. what, what kind of dog do you have? I've got, I lost my cavoodle. I have a spoodle and another thing that's, it's just adorable, <laughs> but it's half and half. I used to have Rottweilers, but I lost two oh, of them and grief. I never got yeah, yeah, love um, my dog. Ian says, we have dogs in our workplace. They are sometimes helpful, sometimes they're useless. Hard to imagine a farm without them. Uh, they are not allowed in the house. They are, they smell bad and the muddy. Uh, there's the point. They really have no place in the office, eh? They, they just, look. Julie, he's, dogs, wrong, he's wrong, isn't he? He's completely they wrong. Just have he's totally wrong. You have dogs, obviously, Steve. I, we have a cavoodle pup. Oh, how adorable. Well, I do too. Yeah. Um, They're so the best, aren't they? they they're totally gorgeous. They do not smell. They're hypoallergenic. You can yep. you get them trimmed. They've got wool. They don't smell, Wallace. You need you need to be educated. And, and, and so, so as someone says, can I take then my pet ferret to work, Julia? Little ferrets um, can be a tad of a problem if they get out of their cage. You can't Vegan. take a ferret unless you can put him on a lead and a harness and he's well behaved. You know what? My My office has an open policy on animals. Good grief. Well, there you go. Uh, what do you think on that? Um, both of uh, my panellists today absolutely support uh, bringing in a dog to work, saying they, Tori Fano should have been allowed to keep her, um, what is it, Staffy Bull Terrier uh, at work. His name's Teddy. He has a name. Teddy, yes. Right. Yes. Uh, 2101. Uh, do you support dogs in the workplace or not? Uh, or email me, thepanel at rnz.co.nz.